0: Hi, Pastor Rob here from Blessed Hope Chapel and robcartledgeministries.com. What you hold is true, is it really truth? Will what you believe get you through on Judgment Day? Are you keeping to the pattern of sound teaching held out in Scripture? In this series, Truth, Judgment and Eternity, I intend to deliver messages that check the solidness of our Christian foundation so as to guard the good deposit that was entrusted to us as Christ's ambassadors on this earth. when the church is small is the time when God's refining the doctrine of the church. Uh, And the reason being is that there is so much deception in the church through false doctrine and false teaching. And uh, we know from a broad sense that the the doctrines of of the religions of the world, like Hinduism and Islam, we know from a broad sense that their doctrines are pretty you know corrupt in, in, in relation to what we know from as Christ being the Lord and Messiah And then as we get closer in we get uh, the cults that are also corrupt being like the Jehovah Witnesses, the Mormons, the christadelphians um, then you get a bit closer in again this is closer to the pure purity of doctrine. as you get closer you get like to uh, seventh-day Adventism, and, uh, and also the emergent church teachings and uh, other teachings like that and Catholicism. And you find, okay, now the, the doctrines are getting, they're, they're corrupt as well, but subtly corrupt. They're still preaching and holding up the Bible, just like the JWs are. They're still holding up the Bible saying, this is the truth. However, what they teach is not what's in there. And, and a lot of the Orthodox religions also fall in with that as well. They're teaching the worship of Mary. They're teaching um, that you know the, the, the bread and the wine that we have at communion is the actual literal body of Jesus. That's what the Catholics teach. So there's a whole range of corrupt teachings there which deceive people. They also don't teach repentance. They teach penance in the Catholic Church. So by teaching penance, there's also corruption there because no, the Catholics don't repent and turn from sin. They just, you know, do penance, which is not the same thing. Uh, now, as you get even closer, you get into the mainstream churches and then you've got more corruption in the doctrines and that's where you get things like the once saved, always saved teaching. Um, the pre-tribulational teaching, which is preparing people for a falling away, in my opinion, through my study of the pre-tribulation rapture teaching, if people believe that and then they're forced to go through a tribulation, they're going to fall away. They're going to be part of part of those that great apostasy that that Paul told us about in two Thessalonians chapter two. So the purity of doctrine uh, is so critical for salvation. And that's what uh, this message um, that I'm going to be talking to you about uh, is, is about. Um, and it's just getting down, you know, remember last week we did the sermon called If, the most wicked doctrine in the church, which was the, uh, I call the once saved, always saved doctrine. Now I'm talking about the most wicked doctrine in the mainstream church. And uh, this sermon I'm doing today, is I've called it Obedience to Christ. I've never done this before, but today I'm going to draw from a brother in Queensland, a man by the name of Mick Alexander. Um, I'm a subscriber to his channel on YouTube. He's a great brother. He uh, he and I, you know, talk via email once every few days. Oh, no, sorry, not once every few days, <laughs> once every uh, few months. And uh, he he does some really good stuff. And uh, he did a sermon uh, or a message called obedience, and I just really liked the way he put it and so for the first time I'm actually going to use his message I've added a couple of little things not too much but I'm going to just elaborate on his points because I found them quite interesting and, and a different way of looking at this whole uh, you know what's required of a Christian once he's saved you know what I'm talking about it's sort of coming back to that once saved always saved thing that I'm, I'm totally against so firstly we're just going to look up two scriptures If you can turn to 2 Corinthians 10.5, it says we demolish, if we go back just a few words before verse 5, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought, listen to this, to make it obedient to Christ. So we are to take captive every thought that we have and make it obedient to Christ. That's what that verse is saying to us. Now that's easier said than done, amen? Isn't it easy to say, take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ? Who knows that our thoughts go in a million miles an hour in our head continuously, right? Yeah, exactly, that's how it feels like, doesn't it? It just goes on and on and on and on and on. Sometimes you can't even tell what you're thinking. Who's had that experience? What am I thinking right now? My brain's going in a million directions. Who knows when you start to pray that your thoughts go in a million directions the moment you start to pray, right? Now, we're supposed to take those thoughts and take them captive. That means as disciplined as we can be in other areas of our life, like just say you're a, a, someone that trains and trains hard in the gym and you discipline yourself and you train and you do it correctly and you take your body captive and make it obedient to your will to, to make it strong. We're supposed to do that with our thoughts also. And it is tough. It is a real tough discipline. I think far tougher than disciplining the body is disciplining the mind. But that's what we're called to do in this. Now, 1 John, if we go to that, 1 John. 1 John 5, verse 2. And it says, everyone there, this is how we know that we love the children of God. By loving God and carrying out his commands. What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to love God... And carry out his commands. That means everything that he's commanded us to do, we are to carry out. And one of the things he said, I give you a new command, love one another as I have loved you. We're supposed to love each other in that same light. Now that's a command. Now I should do a sermon called, What are the New Commands of the New Testament? Keep that in mind. Tell me what that title is again later, Matthew, so I can write it down because there's a lot of commands that we're commanded to do throughout the, the New Testament that we really don't follow up on and, and, and obey. Is obedience necessary for salvation or is it an option that we can take or leave? What he's saying, is it just put your hand up and say, I believe, is that's that is all that all that is required? Now, what happens in, in church is they get scriptures that say, Uh, I'm going to actually read it out, that all you need to do is believe. They forget all the other scriptures that relate to that. So what um, Mick Alexander is talking about here, he's going to get us to understand that there are scriptures that say you must believe, but there are other scriptures also that tell us what we should be like to receive salvation. So is obedience necessary for salvation, or is it an option that we can take or leave? Is it? You just accept Jesus and that's it? You can go on in your old life? What exactly is required for us to be eternally saved? Some say that we don't need to be obedient, but only need to believe and just know that Jesus died for us. Because John 3.16, who knows John 3.16? Let's say it together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have Eternal life, or receive eternal life. So, for God so loved the world that He gave His one only Son. That whoever believes in Him. So that's one scripture that just says the only condition in that passage is belief, isn't it? Let's apply this same logic because what Mick is saying here is that they use that scripture to say that's all that's necessary. It just says believe, so that's all that's necessary. But let's apply that same logic to three other verses that, uh, that speak of salvation and see the result. Because if you just pull one scripture out and say that's all that's, that's all that's required and you don't put it in the context of all the scriptures that speak of salvation, you're going to have a twisted doctrine. You're going to think all that I have to do is believe. Is it by grace only? Because in Acts fifteen eleven it says, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we're saved. doesn't say believe there, does it? It just says by, that, by grace that we are saved. So only grace is mentioned here regarding salvation. So if we use that same logic that the, the, the believe-only teachers teach, then that would mean we don't need to believe, we don't need to have faith, and we don't need to repent to be saved. We just need to uh, accept it by grace. In Luke 7.50, it says, your faith has saved you, go in peace. So here we get told that faith has saved them. So only faith is mentioned here regarding salvation. So that would mean we don't have to believe or repent or need God's grace to be saved if you take that single scripture alone, which is how, you know, groups like Jehovah Witnesses, that's how they get their doctrines, Mormons get their doctrines. Through doing that sort of a thing, get one scripture and disregard all the others. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. So here we just get told that only repentance is required. and So that would mean we don't need to believe, have faith or need God's grace to be saved if we use that same logic. Mick is trying to help us to understand that Twisted doctrine that is taught in many, many churches has come about using this kind of logic. Get one scripture, draw from it alone, forget the others, teach people that. You just have to believe that's it. But you've got to have all, of the, all the scriptures that relate to salvation to get the true doctrine of salvation taught. You need to have them all to get a well-rounded understanding. So, obviously, this is in relation to one single proof text. Obviously, each of these statements is wrong in the sense of alone without the others. And it's wrong to say that we have only to believe in Jesus to be saved. From this, we can see the error of using one verse as a proof text for a doctrine. No sound doctrine is based on a single verse. No sound doctrine. The fact is, salvation comes through grace, repentance, faith, as well as believing. You must combine them all. Amen? Who knows the scripture that says um, that the demons believe in, in Jesus and believe in God, but they tremble, don't they? Right? So, believe. You can believe in God, yet still not be saved. You can believe in Jesus, yet still not be saved. We are saved by the grace of God when in faith, when by faith we repent of our sins and believe in Jesus. All four are essential for salvation. Amen? All four. Now, the following is a brief look at grace, faith, and repentance. So, firstly, grace is not a magic word through which we are forgiven no matter what. And this is the, this is the problem today. We have these grace teachers. Who's, who's watched some grace teachers? Yeah? Who, can you name one? Joseph Prince. There he is. Joseph Prince is, is a guy that thinks it's all about grace. It's not about anything else that we can do. It's all about grace. It's got nothing to do with what we do. It's got to do with what he's done. He's, again, just taken the verses of, in relation to grace and salvation, singled them out, and teaches nothing but that. Forgetting that you've got to Repent. That you've got to walk and produce fruit in keeping with repentance. You've got to live a life sold out to Jesus Christ. You've got to die to self, take up your cross and follow him. And Jesus says if you're not worthy of receiving salvation through him unless you do that. But so many Christians don't even consider that at all. The only time they think about Jesus a lot of Christians is on Sunday when their teacher gives them some watered-down false doctrinal message that doesn't give them any conviction, any reason to change. Do you know Jesus made it it, uh, easy to leave and hard to follow him? Did you know following Jesus is the hardest thing a man could possibly choose to do in life? To truly follow Christ, to truly walk with him, is the hardest thing a man could choose to do. The disciples all found out just how hard it was. Did you know all 12 disciples got martyred? Got got killed for the faith? All of his disciples. However, I'll add, one of them was miraculously saved from martyrdom. But he still was martyred in the sense that he was placed, so tradition says that the Apostle John was placed in a vat of boiling oil but the boiling oil didn't affect him, and it freaked out the uh, the emperor at the time, and sent him into, into exile. And guess where he went? Patmos. And guess what he wrote at Patmos? Book of Revelation. Right. So he was still martyred, in that sense. He he was, it, it was sort of a martyrdom, sort of like um, what happened to. Uh, Abraham and Isaac, all that, them as well. Yeah, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego put in the fire. But also Abraham and Isaac. Abraham took Isaac, was about to kill him. The deed was done in his mind. He was going through with it. The knife was about to plunge. But God said, don't even lay a hand on the boy. So it was sort of that sort of thing. The commitment was there. The commitment to Abraham to follow and be obedient to God was there. The commitment in John, the Apostle John, to be obedient even unto death was there. However, he didn't get martyred because he had to see Jesus in his glory and write the book of Revelation. Yeah. Now, so grace is God's loving goodness, reaching out to redeem hell-deserving sinners from slavery to sin. That's what grace is. Grace is, this is something about grace. Grace doesn't teach us that we can do whatever we want and that that forgiveness is unconditional to the point of you don't have to change, you you can be a dirty, rotten scoundrel the rest of your life and you're still forgiven. That's not the type of unconditional grace that comes through Jesus Christ's blood. That's called abuse. That's abusing what Jesus... That's like re-crucifying our Lord over and over again. What the grace is, is grace is something we have to stay under. We have to stay under. And the only way you stay under it is by rejecting all the sin in our life, rejecting those things that pull us away from faith in Christ and, and, and pull us into the world. We have got to reject that stuff. And grace is we stay under grace. Amen? The blood of Jesus washes over those that stay under the blood of Jesus, but you can be guaranteed you're not under the grace of Jesus Christ if you're out there living a wild life and, and committing every sin you possibly can. And, and that, this is according to Scripture. I know it's true. That's why I can say it so boldly and so confidently. We'll go a bit further. Through God's grace, we receive two things. First, we receive forgiveness for our past sins. 2 Peter 1.9 tells us that our past sins are forgiven, but nowhere does it state that our future sins are forgiven. Who's heard the teaching? Put up your hand if you've heard the teaching. Jesus died for your sins, past, present, and future. Have you heard that? Biggest lie in the church. Biggest lie in the church. He forgives us for sins repented of. We must repent. We must repent. We can't assume without repentance that something that we're going to do that's really terrible has been forgiven already. Because that means that's giving, again, a free ticket. Go and do what you want. He, he's forgiven you for that bad stuff you're about to do. And you go, really? Great. Get the cocaine going, boys. Let's get into it. You know what I mean? That's how they... You give someone a license and that's what they do. You know, you get asked out on a pub crawl and you're a Christian. They say, we're going to hit 10 pubs tonight. We're going to drink at least four glasses of beer in each pub. Are you coming? Yeah, well, Jesus has already forgiven me for it, so let's go. <laughs> live your best life. Yeah, and live your best life now. Joel Oster. Jesus died to give you an abundant life and no repentance necessary. Anyway, rather, one John 9, one nine tells us that if we, as as a Christian, sins, then he must confess to receive forgiveness. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That's what it says in one John one nine. He will forgive us our sins if we confess our sins, and he will purify us through that forgiveness of all the unrighteousness that we've we've committed. But there's sins that if you continue to immerse yourself in and you don't repent of and you continue to live that sort of a lifestyle continuously and you 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 just stop repenting and you don't even want to change that's not repentance repentance doesn't mean sorry god that's not what it means you know how many kids have been naughty and they say sorry daddy for being naughty and the next day they do it again sorry daddy and then the next day they're naughty sorry daddy and you know what, you get sick of the sorry after a while, it's like, well, you're just doing it and saying sorry to get out of it, you know. But what I'm going to be happy with is if you come up to me and say, sorry, I'm never going to do it again, and then guess what, never do it again. But maybe a month later, he does it again. But then he says, sorry, I'm never going to do it again. I'm really, 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 really sorry this time. And then three months goes by, four months, and he might do it again, but then he's really remorseful, like he can't believe he's done it again. And then he's like, "Sorry, sorry, sorry, never, ever, 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 ever again." And then he never, ever does it again. That—that's the kind of sin that we can fall into. Very, in, in a sense, you know, hey, you just—I don't know. Life is is crazy. Things will lure you away sometimes. And before you know it, you're doing something. You go, "Why am I doing this? I'm a Christian." You know what I mean? Now, that's the kind of thing that God gives you the ability to overcome. And that's the sort of sins he will forgive. But he won't forgive the one where you just keep on doing it and just saying, sorry, keep on doing it. That's not repentance. That's not repentance. Repentance is turning away from and walking in the other direction. Now, Finnis Dake... He said the modern fallacy that judicial forgiveness covers all sins, past, present, and future, that God does not impute sins of believers to them, the sins of believers to them. So what what he's saying is that no matter how many sins, God's not going to impute them to you, paid by Jesus. He's going to impute them to Jesus but not to you. So that means you can sin to your heart's content and you are out of the, you know, you're not to blame. This is a false teaching. And also the teaching that God never condemns a saved man for any sins committed, but charges them to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's one of the most unscriptural and demon-inspired theories in any church. What it's doing, this is what it's doing. Before Jesus died on the cross and out of that created Christianity in his people, in a sense, by the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ came into his people, and he created a new people, set apart. What this teaching has come and done is it's undone that work that Jesus did to create a new people, and he's that pagan people that he changed to become a new people by the Holy Spirit. He now, this teaching allows you to be pagan and claim Christianity, to be pagan yet claim Christianity. This is a terrible teaching. It's really stuffed the church up. Many parts of the church, I should say. Not everyone, because there are many teachers around that are teaching the truth and will stand ardently against sin in the church. This is one of of the most unscriptural and demonized by theories in any church. He will forgive all sins that are confessed to him. But this does not give the saved man a blank check to continue in sin and live as he pleases without any fear of being held accountable for his sins after he's one time been saved. So what he's saying is, um, we don't, as Christian people, we aren't allowed to do what we want. And you know what? Who knows that sinning just makes you feel bad, ultimately. You might have a bit of a buzz, it might be a bit excited, it might be a bit of fun at the time, but afterwards it leaves you feeling miserable, especially if you're Christian, because you look back on it and go, gee, I wish I didn't, have, didn't do that. Amen? Who's, who's getting what I'm saying? I know I'm, I'm sort of harking on the holiness thing, but do you know what? God's revealed to me that the biggest issue in the church today worldwide is lack of holiness. Christians don't choose to be holy anymore. The good Christian is not a holy man anymore. He's just a man who says, I'm Christian. And he thinks he's good, but he's not a holy man. You know, I remember I met I met a, a group of people, a group of Christians, and they went to they, used to, they were belonging to a church in Adelaide, a big mega church, I won't say its name. And uh, we were in a caravan park. And we were trying to sleep at about... 11, 12 o'clock at night and these Christians are up all night drinking until they are like right out of it and uh, I was just thinking man where did they, as Christians where did this teaching come from that gave them that ability to, to party harder than anyone else in this caravan park you know what I mean well, wouldn't you party harder if you thought in your mind, I'm going to heaven and I can get drunk as a skunk as well and have a really good time? Let's party. I can, and that means I can party harder than you and you and you because you're going to hell. You're partying and going to hell, but I'm partying and going to heaven. It doesn't make sense, does it? It doesn't make sense. Yet this is what they get taught and that's the way they end up living. And you know what, I used to be one of those Christians. I used to be one of those Christians. Yeah. How many of you know that you can be a Christian and live like that? I, I was living like that, and the reason I lived like that was because of this teaching. And it's not until this teaching came along that it slapped me in the face, and I'm going, okay. So I thought, oh, I've got to change. <laughs> I've got to be holy, I can't drink until I get drunk. I can't, you know, take drugs. I can't do all the things that the world makes so much makes it sound like so much fun. So, grace. Second, we receive the Holy Spirit to guide us and to strengthen us to overcome future sin. So that's what the Holy Spirit's for. He's to, when the Holy Spirit comes into a man, He will make a man holy. He will make him holy. He's not immediately holy. He's made holy. He's forgiven and considered holy and righteous. But all of those old behaviours are still in that man. So then it's a matter of being obedient to the Holy Spirit and changing and following the guidance of the Holy Spirit and letting him make you holy. That's what the Holy Spirit's promised to do to us. 2 Peter 1, 3-4 tells us that God's divine power, the Holy Spirit gives us everything we need for life and godliness so that we can escape the corruption of sin in our lives. That's what the Holy Spirit will do to us. He will help us to escape sin, to not live in sin, to not desire worldly things. He'll give us a passion to read the Scriptures. He'll give us a passion to listen to these sort of sermons. He'll put it in our heart to be a church. He'll put it in our heart to pray. You know, and this is what you've got to ask yourself, and I'm starting to ask this a lot now. Are we filled with the Spirit? Do we have the Holy Spirit? And are we being filled by the Holy Spirit daily? Because the Holy Spirit will make you passionate about prayer. The Holy Spirit will make you passionate about Bible study. He'll make you passionate about resisting sin and living a holy life. Now, if you're not getting passionate in those areas, you've got to say, Lord, I don't think I'm filled with you today. I don't think I have your Holy Spirit today. Who wakes up in the morning with a passion to read the scriptures? Anyone? Yeah, good, good. Who may, wakes up with a passion to pray? You know, when I wake up, I'm, I wake up, and in my mind, I'm laying there. In my mind, I'm my first thing is Jesus. It's the first; he's the first one I think about at the moment I wake up, and from that moment forward, I'm just, I'm saying, Lord, just bless this day, just be with me now, Lord. You know. So from the moment I wake, my my mind goes into Jesus and I start to consider him and pray. Now, whether I end up then going and praying for three hours or or whatever is another story, but what happens is I get filled with the Spirit. Then I, I spend time in devotions. I also get the kids ready for school and I do a range of things with the kids. We should wake with the Holy Spirit filling us with thoughts of Jesus Christ. You know? That should be our first concern. You think about it. When you get to heaven and you're in heaven for eternity, what's what's going to fill your mind and consume your mind in heaven? Yeah, thoughts of Jesus Christ and of God, the Father, who are one but separate. Now, we, we have got to be living in heaven right now in a sense that the kingdom of God is within us, the Bible says. The kingdom of God is within us. So within you... You've got to carry the Holy Spirit. You've got to carry the Holy Spirit in your mind, in your heart, and he's got to be in you and with you. And so the the way you're going to live in eternity in heaven is how you've got to start living now. If you think, like I've heard people say, the best part of heaven is going to be worshipping God, is going to be lifting your arms up to God and praising him with all your heart, that's going to be the best part of heaven. And you know why? Because we're going to be completely Uncentred on ourselves and totally Centred on God and Jesus And the Holy Spirit and it's going to be The most magnificent thing That you could possibly do in heaven Is just to worship God With him there It's going to be the most beautiful Thing and you will be doing it For weeks on end and not even know That you've, you've done it For that long it'll seem like a passing Moment So if that's what we're going to be doing in heaven, start worshipping with all your heart now. This is another thing to add to your prayer life is just stand up and start to worship God. Sing praises to him. Sing some of the songs that we sing in church and sing them to Jesus. When you're driving along, sing praises to God. You know, start to be those worshippers. Remember Jesus says when he comes, will he find worshippers on the earth? Will he find true worshippers? those that worship in spirit and truth, make sure you're that person. Make sure you're that person that Jesus is looking for when he returns. Because the ones that are like that are the ones that are going to go up to be with him in the clouds, it says. I'm not talking about what the timing of it right now because we've always been in reference to the timing. But one thing he's going to do is when he comes and those that are still alive will be raptured, will be caught up by the angels and brought to be with him. So make sure you're one of those down on earth that is worshipping in spirit and truth with all your heart because then he will go, there's one, pick him up. There's another one, pick him up. But if you're down here and you're involved in deep sin and you're drunk and the Lord returns, filled with, with drugs, you know, living a, a, a life that you, you know Jesus would not approve of. And Jesus finds you like that, you're going to be discarded. You're going to be thrown out with the hypocrites. Where there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth, the Bible says. So make sure you're living holy lives now. And you think of it from this perspective. We might not be here saying, When Jesus returns at the second coming. We could die before that, couldn't we? But make sure when you die that you're found to be in that place. That he finds you holy at death. Make sure he finds you in the spirit, worshipping the Father in spirit and truth at death. Amen? Yeah? These are important words. These are important words because eternity is a long time to be lost. Eternity is so long to be discarded, and you know what? People know what it's like if they get a 10-year prison sentence. They go in there, they're in prison, and they go, oh man, 10 years. At least they get out of 10 years, do you know what I mean? There's a way out eventually, but when you go to hell, there is no exits. There's no way out. There's no court of appeal. To say, Lord, 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 you're wrong. You're wrong, Lord, you're wrong. I don't deserve to be here. Oh, was a good Christian. There's no court of appeal. The judgment's been set. The day is finished. The judgment day is over. You are thrown out into the fire. That day, you don't want to be part of that crowd that ends up there. And you know what the Bible says? Jesus says "Is broad broad is the road and multitudes walk upon the broad road that leads to destruction, wake up while multitudes walk on the broad road that leads to destruction and they're going to be lost forever and you know this sermon and me telling you this now is the these are the most important words you you guys have heard all week. These are the most important words. If you respond to them, that you're going to hear for, for, ever, forever. Because these words will keep you out of hell. Why would I be teaching this to a, a people that, to the most part, you guys live a pretty good life in Christ, don't you? Yeah. Could you say that you, you you're not living the way you used to live? Who would agree? We've changed a fair bit. But who here feels that they're actually um, where they are supposed to be in Christ? Could you say that if Jesus returned, that you're where he would want you to be? Could you say that? So Jesus rocks up, he walks up to you, and, and, and you look at Jesus and go, look at me, look how good I am. I've been the best Christian around, Lord. Could you say that? Could anyone here say that? So who knows what I'm saying you need to hear? Yeah? Even Paul. Do you know Paul? At the uh, beginning of his walk, they say, he called himself the greatest of apostles. At the end of his walk, he called himself the greatest of sinners. So he went from thinking he was, you know, because of what he was doing, he was doing pretty good, to the end of his life, the greatest sinner. Because he persecuted the church of God, and I don't know. Remember? Do you remember that sermon that many year, years ago where I talked about getting closer to Jesus, and the closer you get, the more sin gets revealed in your life? Who's seen that sermon? Yeah, and it's like the equivalent of a wearing a white shirt, and there's a you go into a certain light, or just say you walk with a white shirt on, and you go into a sort of a dark room, and you go, yeah, it's pretty white. But then you walk into a more bright light and then you realize, man, there's stains on this shirt. So you wash it, you get it all clean, you look at it in that light, okay, it looks better now. Then you go into an even brighter light. You see more sin and muck in your life. You know, every time you get a little bit closer to Jesus, you see more of the sin and muck in your life. Now, what I'm trying to do here is get us to walk closer and closer to the Lord. Keep walking closer. Because the closer you get, the more he's going to reveal stuff. If you haven't had things revealed in your life of late about how far you're falling short of Christ, then you're not walking close enough to Jesus. Because the closer you walk. Now, from the beginning of Paul's walk to the end of his life, he walked closer every day. So, by the end of his life, he said, I'm the greatest of sinners. Not that he actually was the greatest of sinners at that point in his life, he was probably the greatest saint that ever walked the earth. But in comparison to the Lord Jesus and what Jesus revealed in him, the things that he was getting dealt with, he felt like the most dirty, rotten sinner there was. And you know what? How often I feel like a dirty, rotten sinner. And it's not meaning, you know, that, that Christianity makes you feel low and makes you feel bad about yourself. You know, to the I generation, this sort of teaching doesn't make them feel like they're the most important people in the universe. This is what this world's all about. Make everyone think they're the most important person in the universe. This is what Satan is teaching. Even though he knows one day they're going to get a rude shock and realise they're not just not important at all, But they'll end up discarded and thrown into hell with him. So he's out there to deceive people. He's out there to lead them astray, to make them think that life is all about them. 2 Peter 1, 3-4 it tells us that God's divine power, the Holy Spirit gives us everything we need for life and godliness so that we can escape the corruption of sin in our lives. Also, Titus 2.11, the 14, tells us that God's grace teaches us to reject ungodliness and worldly passions as we wait for Jesus who gave himself to redeem us from all wickedness. We are to reject ungodly, worldly passions. What would you say is a worldly passion? What do you think is a worldly passion? Television is a worldly passion. Something like a consumer thing, yeah, to buy an article of, you know, to buy clothing when you've already got plenty of clothing because you just want more, just want more. What else do you think is worldly passion? Sports. Sports, yep. exactly. mobile. Mobile phones, the good old iPhone. Yeah, phones can be, you know, it's amazing with teenagers and I know it because I've got a few... I can watch kids sit on mobile phones and look at that screen for I don't know how many hours in a day. They will look at the screen of their phone continuously for long, long periods of time. Am I lying? (laughs) I (laughs) am. And, you know, they're doing stuff, right? It's all busy stuff. But they're passionate about it. Do you know about that, Jim? That Jim? Jim or Jim? You don't? Good. Do you, Jim? Yes, you do. At least there's some honesty in the group. I, I believe Jim doesn't do that much of it. Do you sit in front of computer screens very much? Yeah. So just a different... Not a little screen, a big screen. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, that, that is a, a worldly passion. And, you know, that worldly passion can absorb you for so many hours and you might even have in the back of your mind, I should really put this down and read the Bible. But then, oh hold on, Look, that's interesting. And away you go. You keep on going with it. At the end of the day, you 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 go to turn it off. It's eleven o'clock. You should really get to bed and pray beforehand and then you go, oh hang on, what's that? Keep on going. And then you know it's twelve thirty, oh, I've got to turn off, gotta straighten the bed. Turn it off in the bed. Forget all about Jesus. And this is the challenge. We live in the most challenging time in history in relation to things that are actually drawing or vying for our attention. Who who would agree? Knowing what life was like pre-1950, you know, where the most distracting thing they had back then was a radio, you know, then along come the TV, and that took everybody's attention. They got consumed with that. And then before long, you know, as we've, as we've gone along, we've just got to this point now where there's screens everywhere. Screens everywhere. And they're drawing your attention. They suck the life force out of you as you get pulled into it, you know? Now, don't get me wrong, there's good things you can see using it, like, you know, putting on Rob Cartilage videos good things do more of that but there's so many other things that can lead you astray by uh, by and that these are ungodly worldly passions and you know what when jesus returns or when we die and go to be with jesus these things that we spend our time doing through the day every day will be the things that we will be so ashamed of when you see the account, because, you know, uh, everyone's going to be judged independently and there's going to be no favouritism in the judgment. He's going to run up on a screen. I don't know, that's what I sort of imagine, this big screen. and Rob Carpenter just standing over there and then Jesus is going to say, OK, let's see how much prayer time you've done uh, in your Christianity. And you see this little barometer down the bottom, like, going... Oh like this, let's see how much computer time you've done <laughs> TV time, you know, movie time, all these worldly things, is way up there, Bible reading time, you know down there I'm being honest so we want to make sure that when Jesus comes, we, we can at least be found worthy before him Because he says that there will be those that will come in to the kingdom of God and Jesus will say, welcome, my good and faithful servant. You're a good, faithful servant. Come, enter into my rest. Who wants to hear those words? Yeah? How much do you want to hear those words? How passionate are you to hear those words? What could you give up in life? Think about these sort of things. What sort of worldly passions could you give up in life to ensure that you receive those words or hear those words when you get to heaven? There's a lot of things we could give up, isn't there? Just think about it in yourself. What sort of things would you have to do in this life to ensure that you receive or hear those words when you get to heaven? How could you change the way you live now so that you could become more favourable in the eyes of God? What could you do that could change that? You know? And Christianity is pretty cut and dry in in many respects. It's things like prayer, things like Bible reading, and not just Bible reading, Bible studying, Bible memorising... But also witnessing, telling people about Jesus. But before you go out and witness, make sure you've prayed up. You've prayed up plenty and go out and reach people. I was just reading this morning about John praying, high. If he went out and witnessed to someone and that someone didn't turn to Jesus, he would go into his prayer room and he would pray until he found out what's wrong with him, that that his words didn't have an impact on that person's life. So he would pray and pray and pray and pray and pray and, pray, and then he would, he would find out what it is. He would repent of whatever it was that he was doing and then he would go back out in the street and he would witness again and see results. He was bringing, he prayed at one stage for one soul a day. He started to see that. Then he started to pray for two and he eventually prayed for four and I don't know how much further he went with that but he ended up getting four souls a day. Wouldn't you like to be able to walk out on the street every day and see four people turn to Jesus Christ with all their heart? Per day. Some of us can go a whole lifetime and never see four souls saved by our testimony. So if we think we're doing pretty good, we've got to think again, there's a lot further we can go. When you read the accounts of these great men of God that lived and gave their lives to Jesus Christ and lived wonderful lives, but they also had the most incredible experiences in God in the sense of things that they achieved for Jesus when you read about that, you re- realise just how far away from those sorts of standards we are in our own Christian walk. And it just makes me, when I read that, it makes me want to try harder. You know, it makes me want to try harder to be a better Christian. You know, in the eyes of God. In the eyes of God. All right, let's pray. Thank you, God, for this, uh, this time, this message. I pray And I thank, thank you, God, that uh, Mick gave me... Uh, some really good words here to use for this sermon. I just pray your spirit be uh, upon all of us who have heard this message, all of us here in this room right now, and also those who uh, will, will hear it on the internet and are, are listening to it right now on YouTube. I pray that their lives will be blessed and transformed as they turn and give everything... That's within them, to Jesus Christ. And they start to resist worldly passions, resist ungodliness, and uh, start to walk after you in every single way. Help, help, help it to be the case with all of us, Lord, that when we wake up in the morning, that you are the first person in our thoughts. That uh, thoughts of you consume us and prayers will go up from us the moment we open our eyes. Let this be the way we start every day. And may we continue through each day like that, Lord Jesus. I just pray your blessing over us this week. Bless everything that we do, everything that we say. And uh, and bring us safely back together again next week where we can uh, hear your word again and be uh, built up and transformed by it. Uh, in the name of Jesus, we pray this. Amen. To this sermon. If you search Rob Cartledge in the iTunes store or go to www.robcartledge.com, you'll see a number of different sermon series, Uncovering Religion, Truth, Judgment and Eternity, Apologetics 101, Critical Doctrine and End Times. Feel free to check them out.